Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pixels and Profits, episode number three. Today, we are joined by the famous Sir Toto from games industry consultancy, Kanton Games, based in Tokyo. And Sircon is quite possibly the foremost expert on the Japanese video games industry. Welcome, Sircon. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And besides Sircon, again with us today, you have the Pixel Brothers, myself, Joseph Kim, Matthew Contraman, and Brian Peganoff. Welcome back, guys. I Thanks, am very, I'm very excited today as we will be discussing the top three Japanese and top three Korean video game companies, which means from Japan, Nintendo, Sony, and Square Enix, and from Korea, Nexon, Netmarble, and NCSoft. Although I, I think Matthew will kind of go into Nexon's kind of a Japanese company, kind of a Korean company. We can go into the details on that. But before diving in to discuss these specific companies, the top three Japanese and Korean game companies, I wanted to actually take a step back and also just kind of get a sense of the overall market in terms of when it comes to Japan and Korea, are there specific trends? Are there specific insights or key things that we should be aware of when it comes to these companies? Sircon, maybe we can hand it over to you to get your kind of overall high-level take. Today's episode is sponsored by Data.ai to access estimates for rankings, downloads, revenue, usage, or engagement for millions of apps on the App Store and Google Play. Sign up for Data.ai. Um, yes, yeah, so, so there's a couple. So, uh, so I think that for the for the uh, as far as console games are, uh, are concerned, uh, I think that uh, I think that uh, uh, China is uh, still a very small market. I think that Korea is a very small market for for console games. So if you look at the Chinese market, it's all about mobile and PC, uh, very very similar to uh, Korea. Whereas in uh, Japan, uh, uh, mobile is absolute king, and console is a distant second. So mobile in Japan is around a ten billion dollar business. Depends on the data provider that you ask. Uh, depends on the currency rate, con uh, currency uh, rate conversion, conversion rate, uh, and you know, and uh, and other factors. But roughly, it's in that ballpark. Um, and uh, and it has been that way for like about a decade, right? So, but the console market in Japan has always been relatively stable if you just look at the numbers. And the reason why I'm saying that is that sometimes, you know, people think that, uh, you know, uh, the Japanese console gaming space is dead. A couple of years ago, you know, there was basically like a one big trend that people saw in the global uh, console gaming market, you know, because the U.S. was taking over back, back at that time uh, in terms of revenue and things like that. But actually, that never happened. So the domestic console gaming market in Japan is, is still is still quite big. I, I think that uh, as far as video games, uh, uh, video games in the, in the big Asian regions go, um, these uh, this is, I think, uh, uh, one big trend. That you know you have you have these kind of like uh, uh, different splits um, across these countries, and I I think um, when 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 it comes to Asia, it also seems like there's it, would it be fair to say that there is kind of like a crypto trend amongst at least some of the Korean companies? Absolutely, what, yeah, what? that's a big one. That's a very very big one. So uh, the, uh, so in in the West at the moment, you know at the at the, at the you know um, point um, at the point of time of recording this. Uh, you know, in June uh, 2023, uh, crypto is declared largely dead uh, in, in terms of uh, crypto gaming in the West, right? Largely, not, not absolutely, but largely. Whereas in, in Asia, that, that discussion actually never happened, right? So never happened at least to that extent. So if you look at, if you look at the list of publicly traded uh, Japanese uh, uh, video game and mobile game companies, by the way, 
almost every, everybody on that list or almost every company on that list at, to some degree is active in crypto. Right, and I think that you will see a, a whole barrage of crypto games uh, made by publicly traded uh, uh, Japanese companies uh, in in a couple of months. So maybe in the, uh, you know in the rest of uh, across the rest of uh, 2023 um, and at the beginning of 2024. Whereas in Korea, um, you know, I have the I have the perception that uh, uh, that uh, the Koreans are absolutely crypto crazy. Right, not only in gaming, but also the the general population. Right, where the, the adoption rate is just super high. People are trading, and uh, even after the various scandals that we had in this industry, and you know, the, you you just uh, named a couple of uh, Korean names, um, and there's even more than uh, more than uh, these gaming companies uh, from from Korea that are active in crypto. Um, so basically, crypto is is a big topic in in the Asian in the Asian gaming space. Uh, totally different uh, from uh, from Europe and uh, and North America. Got it. In in our last episode, we did discuss sort of the console wars, Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony. There were a number of conclusions that we came up with. I don't know if you had a chance to check it out, but like some of the conclusions: one, Microsoft may be in danger. M Microsoft, meaning the Xbox part of the Microsoft business, um, maybe. I don't, I don't know if you would agree with us, but maybe this is one of the last generations of Xbox. I think we also came to the conclusion um, that mobile is not likely a big, there isn't like much synergy between mobile and cons, cons, for, to a console maker. Uh, and then mm. we, we had a number of other conclusions, whether um, around the impact of live services and, and the free-to-play business model to the console market. But wondering right. you know, if, I, if you had a chance to um, give us feedback on that. If you disagree with anything with uh, any of the conclusions that we've had, it'd be great to get your take. Or if you have any other insights or thoughts on just the the console wars before we kind of dive into specific uh, Japanese and Korean companies. Right, right. Uh, yeah. So I think that Brian hinted at that had, uh, at the towards the end of the show, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, and I think that you know, I, 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 for example, you know, should make it actually more clear. At least in my view, that it's crystal clear uh, that you know Sony has absolutely been, been destroying Microsoft, right, over the last generations, right. So if you look at the uh, place, Xbox 360 and PS3 generation, that ended with a draw, 60 million to 60 million in terms of hardware sales, right. And I know it's not all everything about hardware, you know, but it's 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 a significant it's a significant factor in, in these quote unquote console wars, right. But uh, if you look at uh, the last generation, the PS4 generation. Uh, Sony sold over 120 million, 125 million units, um, and uh, Microsoft stopped reporting Xbox sales, uh, hardware sales in 2015, right? And I think that uh, since then they they never even hinted at how many uh, how many pieces of hardware are they actually sold in a given in a given fiscal year or in a given in a given quarter, right? And it looks like, based on estimates that that are you know floating around in the industry, that this generation that ratio. Uh, that it seems to be two, two to one, two and a half to one, uh, or something like that. It, uh, you know, it, it seems to be uh, that uh, Sony is uh, successful in retaining that, uh, retaining that ratio. Um, and if you if you look at uh, if you if you compare it to uh, to sports, for example, right? I mean, you know, if it's compared compared to basketball, Sony has not been beating Microsoft a hundred. Uh, 100 to 90 points or 100 to 80 points that's like that's more like 100 to 70 points 100 to 65 points again you know i think they have been really really absolutely destroying them right and uh, 
uh, and if you look at uh, if you look at uh, the uh, the current state of uh, Xbox at the moment, uh, they just uh, they just launched uh, a terrible like a first party game. I really don't know how that that game passed uh, QA in 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 in, in uh, you know in, in, micro, in Microsoft's uh, uh, you know launch process on in that in that whole uh, green lighting process. Um, but uh, they are not in a good, very very good state at the, at this point in time. I may be exaggerating. But uh, also, it looks like the Activision deal is not really looking that uh, that uh, uh, that likely right now. It doesn't look uh, too good for for Microsoft, I would say. I would also just jump in. You know, one of the things that I noticed in relation to like the console markets when I was looking at the Asian companies in particular, you know, when mobile really started to come about, there was this whole concern, which I think is now completely overblown, and we have the data to prove that that mobile was going to kill console. And I think even NPC, and I think even Asia, more so than the West, uh, has mm. shown that that's not the case. And they're actually both much larger markets today, mm. particularly on the software side, than they were when mobile came about. You know, yes, you have the the whales on PC, the whales on console that are staying there, and you've opened up this whole TAM on mobile with all the smartphone users. China is the best case for this, but even Korea has shown it. Right, that mobile hasn't been cannibalistic and I think we've, you know, in the last few years, starting maybe 2018, 2019, really started to see more of a, a push to say, hey, we can release AAA quality games on mobile and not cannibalize our core PC business, Korea, you know, in China and in Japan, console versus mobile. Yeah, and very quickly about, about the mobile business of video game companies, because this is, I think, what the podcast is about, you know, the video game companies in particular. Uh, you know, uh, if, you look at, if you look at the U.S. and if you look at uh, Europe, mainly, mainly Ubisoft from that area, uh, you know, the, the Japanese companies and the, and, the Korean, uh, uh, and the Korean companies that, you know, used to do uh, PC, uh, PC games before um, have absolutely been killing it on mobile. Absolutely killing it on mobile. Right. So if you look at Square Enix, for example, Konami, um, um, Sega, to some extent, you know, they're not th that successful, but, you know, they're, they're still trying, you know, um, and Nintendo and Capcom are the only ones that are not really super serious on mobile. All the other Japanese big video game companies that we have have uh, have a pretty active active mobile business, um, and I would say if you look at if you look at just the video game companies, not the mobile first companies, uh, just the video, traditional video game companies that we all know from the 1980s, etc., etc. Uh, Square Enix and Konami are probably the two most successful ones, commercially speaking. Mostly, mostly in Japan, uh, but uh, you know they've been very, very um, clever in revitalizing some of their old uh, console uh, IP on mobile. And uh, largely because they are RPG based and adventure based, and you know, uh, uh, you know, they're developing games that are suitable for, uh, for for mobile or that have been considered suitable for mobile for a long time. Uh, but you know, again, they made billions. Some of these companies made billions over the last decades, just on mobile and just in Japan. All right. Well, but before I'm... we get into company discussions, I did have like one question, high level, about. Japanese companies, in particular, I think we've seen it with some of the Korean companies also, is mobile live services because a lot of these companies have been really successful at launching these games and they make a lot of money at launch, but not all of them are so successful at maintaining the live services tail. I'm just, you know, Square Enix has done it very well, right? We've seen that with like the Final Fantasy games and a few of the other IPs, but you know, I think you know some some of the games from like Nexon come out huge out of the gate and then they just have no tail to them, right? And so I'm curious. You know, how, what you've seen, do you think the companies in, in Japan and Korea are getting better at this? How do you think about their live services expertise and their ability to not just have 
big hits but have sustainable franchises on mobile? Oh, I would say that uh, the, the, on, on uh, mobile in particular, the Japanese uh, uh, companies, there's no discussion about this, right? They invented life servicing, right? They invented uh, this concept of having like these so-called like forever games, as I think Zynga has, has been, as, uh, Zynga has coined this, terms, uh, th this term um, in, in the first place. Right. Um, I mean, uh, mobile, mobile, social, mobile games, as we know them today with free to play and live servicing, et cetera, et cetera, have been around in Japan since uh, um, spring 2007, when a company called Gree uh, introduced what they are saying is the first uh, mobile social game that has ever been created and ever been launched to the public. Right. And uh, Gree is a publicly traded company. Right. So um, and uh, so, been, so the concept of live servicing has been around for a long, long time. Um, and I would agree, you know, there are some there are some there are some games that are coming out very, very strong, especially in Korea. And then you have a lot of traffic going in, in that in, in that in, into that uh, into that uh, given game. And then you have you have a certain level of monetization. The app goes up in the grossing rankings. Everybody thinks this is the next big thing. And then it drops off. Um, but I think it's very, very different from from a, uh, from a country like uh, Japan, for example, where people are a lot, lot more loyal to to a given game, right? So you have uh, games like uh, uh, Puzzle and Dragons, which I think is the most iconic mobile game from Japan. Uh, the game is in operation since February 2012, right? And uh, Mixi's Monster Strike, which has been making almost a billion dollars every year since launch, they launched in 2013. Right, the game is still around. Last year, uh, Monster Strike was the top-grossing uh, mobile game in Japan. But I think they made again the currency uh, uh, rate is, is 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 a little bit uh, is a little bit iffy these days. You know, between the Japanese yen and the US, they made seven hundred million, right? In 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 just in Japan, just with that one mobile game. So they make what is it? Almost two million dollars per day, and that's just pure life servicing. Right? I mean, it's a life servicing business, right? That comp that particular company, Mixi. That is developed to Monster Strike is, is a life servicing business. Gangho is a life servicing business. Square Enix has been life servicing a couple of uh, uh, a couple of uh, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest based uh, uh, mobile games for years and years and years now. Okay, well, let's uh, let's dive into these companies. I'm excited to get your your takes on this. And so maybe starting with Japan and Nintendo, I'll hand it over to you, Brian, to uh, give us a little overview on on Nintendo. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, so Nintendo is a publicly traded company, market cap about $57 billion. The stock is up about 5% year-to-date versus 39% for the Qs and 16% for SPY. So it's certainly a meaningful underperformer. Um, in its last investor release in mid-May, the company reported uh, $12.2 billion in fiscal 22 and guided 23 to $11.5 billion, so a 5.5% year-on-year contraction. Uh, they did about $4.2 billion of OI in 22, guiding uh, 23 to 3.63 billion. So the stock is trading at about 5x forward revenues and 16x forward OI. Uh, also worth noting, like consensus numbers for this stock are very similar to what the company has guided to. And I think Matt alluded to last time, uh, Nintendo has a storied tradition of sandbagging guidance. So that kind of uh, remains to be seen what the actual print does. Um, and I would also note, since that last investor release in mid-May, the stock is up only 3% versus S&P about 6-ish. So again, still materially underperforming. Um, so I guess I wanted to kind of launch into why I like Nintendo here for a, a variety of reasons. Then we'll kick it over to Sircon to get his uh, response and maybe some uh, other, other thoughts and things like that. Uh, first one, the Switch is now six years old. 
So it's reasonable to assume that a new hardware generation is kind of on the horizon. Um, and successful hardware transitions have always been a boon for Nintendo shares in prior cycles, at least the successful ones. Uh, I also think Nintendo is a scarce asset. Uh, it's very rare to find a company that owns their own distribution ecosystem, along with a rich catalog of wholly owned IP. And the entire company is nearly wholly dedicated to and exposed to gaming. Uh, the Switch generation also spurred much stronger relationships with third-party developers. Uh, I expect this to carry forward to the next generation. And I think the next generation also has like this interesting caveat of being able to test that Sony and Microsoft duopoly, uh, given the sufficient power and things like that. Um, I do believe they've found their uh, niche in the gaming market, which is a mix of good enough console strength alongside portability. And I think it's unlikely that uh, that will be supplanted by competitors in the market like PlayStation or Valve uh, without the breadth and depth of content that I you know, think only Nintendo can deliver. Um, also, 43% of sales are U.S.-based. It's culturally relevant, time-tested IP in the West, especially relative to the peers that we're discussing today. And lastly, uh, it's a name where that's pretty rare in TMT, where street estimates need to move up materially. Uh, and there's a lot of chasing numbers right now in uh, the sell side, especially with mega caps. So end of summer is typically the time when investors start focusing on next year's estimates. Um, so the reasons that you know you could be wrong on this is uh, I think there's some hope of a new hardware generation baked into the stock right now, especially after a guide down. And that could take a little longer to materialize or announce than expected. Um, Nintendo's vision for the next generation could certainly miss the mark. They've done it before, uh, but I think that's pretty unlikely. And then uh, the last one is that software units and sales could underwhelm. And for reference there, they guided to 100 million AD units this year versus 214 million last year. So that's down 16%. Uh, I guess I'll kick it off with my first question for Sircon. Um, what are your thoughts on next generation uh, hardware? Uh, do you think Nintendo will continue down their current path with a stronger portable console or go a completely different direction? Yeah, so, so, so the, the so-called like Switch 2, as people put it, uh, it has been like a has been like this unicorn, you know, in, in the video game, in the video game industry that uh, nobody has actually seen, nobody has actually, you know, touched, but uh, everybody's talking about it. And there seems to be something in the air, but nobody knows what it's going to be, right? And I myself have been burned, like, publicly already with speculation around the Switch 2, I think, at least two times when I thought that, you know, it's really coming this time. And apparently, you know... Um, a next generation hardware was out there, you know, as in, term, in, in the form of a development kit at some point in time. But then, you know, Nintendo apparently killed it, um, and it never it never happened. So I think there is not going to be uh, like um, an updated version of the Switch, but uh, a next gen actually next generation hardware as the next big launch for Nintendo. That's point one. The second point is, you know, nobody knows. Um, uh, what what kind of hardware uh, Nintendo is going to put out next time, especially on the on the TV console side, you know, because I think that until 2017, Nintendo basically has been running two separate businesses, right? The TV console business and the handheld console business. I think that's very very important for my view to understand about the company as a whole. Now, uh, since 2017, they only have one platform. Right, and that that uh, that might be good and might be bad, d d depending on how how particular how um, 
how successful that particular platform is, but that's the situation right now. And until then, that again, two different businesses with uh, different uh, you know addressable markets, different pricing, different hardware, different software development teams, com- really, really almost completely separate, right? Um, and uh, um, and I think that the challenge now for Nintendo is now the, to uh, to ask themselves or for investors also, what are they going to do next? Are they are they going to uh, you know um, are they going to have a more conservative switch too? That is just a beefed up switch with maybe uh, the one or the other bell and whistle added to the platform, or are they going to have a completely new form factor, completely new concept, a completely new way to um, you know delight users and make them smile, as Nintendo would put it, right? And I personally think that at least on paper, and I'm already hedging um, because it's Nintendo. Right, uh, because they now have only one business that they focus on. Their appetite for launching weird experiments like the Wii U, uh, the Wii back in the day, for example, right, which was a total departure from uh, from the GameCube, is probably limited this time. Because if they screw up this time, they have to carry that piece of hardware that they screwed up with for uh, through the, um, through the next four or five years, right? Uh, because, you know, you cannot launch a, a totally new piece of hardware every one or two years. That's not possible, not even not even for Nintendo, right? Uh, so that's point one. The second point is, I think that it will it will have whatever, uh, whatever the next hardware is going to be, it will have a portable element because of a very, very simple reason. And that reason is uh, Pokemon, right? So Pokemon is traditionally, uh, the first game came out, I think in 1996, right? And it, since then it has been, um, you know, basically synonymous with portable Nintendo hardware. I know that now the latest versions, you know, you can play on the Switch. There have been some spin-offs that you could actually put, already play on uh, TV consoles before the Switch. You know, I know that, but it's basically like a handheld handheld game, right? I mean, the portability factor is a big one for, for the Pokemon brand. And Nintendo will never abandon Pokemon. By extension, Nintendo will never abandon the portable uh, gaming business. That's why I I think uh, the portable element will have uh, will play a major role in whatever the next uh, Switch hardware, uh, the, the next sorry Nintendo hardware is going to be. I think that makes a lot of sense, and you know, to your point, they only have one platform now. They need to avoid the, you know, on average they're due for a flop, right? Just that's the history of <laughs> Nintendo. But they need to avoid that this time around. So it does make sense for them to be more conservative. I think it was Sharp also that kind of indicated that they received orders for a customer's next generation entertainment product. So, you know, that 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 makes you think they're sticking to something familiar if they're using the existing screen supplier, display supplier already. So, you know, it, it, all in, it, it, it makes total sense for them to be conservative and stick with what they're good at. Uh, I, I just really want them to remaster Pokemon Red and Blue. Like, that would probably sell, what, 40 million units? Easy? Yeah. Like, like yeah. easy. Like, I don't understand why it hasn't been done yet. <laughs> uh, because it's Nintendo, right? And uh, and you know, you, you talked about like uh, I think Brian uh, Brian mentioned like investors and Nintendo and this is you know I I, con- I consult to a lot of financial institutions like with 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 uh, in my in my everyday in my everyday work and it is always like over over ten years now there's always been like a love hate relationship. Right, so some some investors come from 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 the U.S. to uh, to uh, Tokyo. They meet me, you know, and then we talk about Nintendo. They go they go to Kyoto to talk with the company, co- come back and tell me that they want to short the stock, right? Because they're so <laughs> bad at de- selling themselves, right? So so just like so so living in their own like Nintendo world, you know, uh, uh, far away in Kyoto, which is like 
not not a metropolis like a, a, a metropolis like a, like Tokyo, for example, right? Um, and uh, it's it's just a very very strange company sometimes, especially in their communications to uh, to shareholders. So it's it's uh, for, for a lot of shareholders, it's uh, uh, Nintendo's after all of these years is still very enigmatic. So what, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you think about just sentiment now, especially with uh, a hit movie behind them, and also that uh, Zelda title you just finished playing last night? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, um, I did, I did. Uh, so I think that uh, around ten years, uh, you know, uh, investors hated the stock. Everybody hated Nintendo stock, right? And at some point in time, uh, the stock was below ten thousand. Now there was a stock split in between, right? Ten to one stock split. So if you look at the stock now, um, it's it's uh, I think six thousand yen or something like that. Um, and uh, uh, so, it, uh, but back then it was uh, um, uh, uh, it would have been like sixty thousand, right, before the stock split. And again, around I think in 2014, the stock was at 9,900 or something like that. One year later, uh, Gung Ho, the company be, be, uh, behind Puzzle and Dragons that I just mentioned, um, the market cap for a few days of Gung Ho was higher than that of Nintendo. Absolute insanity! It makes no sense, right? It made no sense ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago, and now, today, it's 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 a travesty to think even think about it, right? So, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that you know the sentiment for Nintendo now is much much better than it used to be during the Wii U time or the, during around the launch at at the Wii U, where basically everybody has written off uh, Nintendo. And the most extreme that I heard from an investor was uh, uh, from the U.S. Um, and basically, that person said that Nintendo is going to be the next Atari, right? I mean, that 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 never happened, right? I mean, that's a very very radical uh, statement back then already. That never happened, but much much better now. But I think that everybody agrees uh, to a kind of like wait and see approach as far as Nintendo is going to uh, is concerned. Everybody is looking at the next hardware. I think that you know the, the Switch has already been written off as a success story for, for Nintendo. And, you know, it has instilled uh, a confidence back into the market as far as Nintendo is concerned. But again, everybody's waiting for uh, the fable to switch to. And Sircon, you had mentioned the historical context of Nintendo kind of being the, the two parts, right? The, the portable and then the console. And now that it's, now that it, they're focused on the one business or the one platform, you could kind of understand why in the past they may have been reluctant to push mobile because you know it, it would compete more directly with the portable side of the business. But do you think that now, and to your point, there are a number of Japanese companies who have done tremendously well on mobile. What do you think in terms of the mobile Nintendo's mobile push in the future, are they going to just keep things status quo? Or do you think they could now, now that they're focused on like the one, even though it's maybe a bit of a hybrid sort of, of platform, do you think they would push more meaningfully in, into mobile? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so when Nintendo um, announced their entry into mobile, I was there at the press conference, right? I was sitting okay. in the second row and uh, back then the, uh, the uh, now unfortunately, um, uh, you know, diseased uh, Nintendo president was speaking and then uh, Iwata-san and then, you know, he was saying, yeah, we're going to push into mobile um, and it's a new frontier for us and, you know, our content is suitable for mobile. Um, and the reason why was very simple because Nintendo was in a very, very bad financial situation at that point, right? So um, if you look if you look at Nintendo right now, it's a totally different company in a lot of ways. I mean, I can talk about that, just about that for, for an hour. But uh, uh, they, uh, I think that Nintendo looks down on mobile games, right? I think that Nintendo thinks that mobile games are junk food that you consume while you wait for the bus, right? And I think that Nintendo thinks that they are crafting video games, 
That's why they can charge $60 or $70 in the, uh, in the case of uh, Tears of, of the Kingdom for this gourmet food that they're making. Right? And I think that this is really a, a, a part of Nintendo's thinking and of their identity. Right, at least at this point in time, right. So if if you look at if you look at Nintendo's uh, mobile business right now, the last real mobile game that you can call a game came out from uh, came out in September. I think it was what was it September two thousand nineteen before COVID. Right? Super so, Mario Run. Super Mario Run was yeah. Well, that was the first, yeah. but I think that came out in two thousand sixteen. Um, so that was, uh, you know, Miyamoto was on stage at the Apple at the Apple event and, you know, and, and things of that nature. But the Mario Kart Tour was really the last, I think, Nintendo Nintendo game. Um, and what is it now? Four years almost by three, uh, three years and nine months. And if that doesn't if that uh, um, uh, kind of like a time distance doesn't tell you everything about what you want to know about the Nintendo's mobile <laughs> ambitions at this point in time, I don't know how to help you. Right? I mean, they are not interested. Right? And they were asked earlier this year, earlier this calendar year, uh, you know, what's up with, the, with your mobile games? Are you, are you looking at the space? Are you, I think it was at a, um, an investor that asked them during the Q&A at the earnings results, and they, they said, we're working on something. And uh, you know, when we have something to announce, we're going to announce it. But since then, absolute dead silence from, from uh, Nintendo about uh, their mobile business. There is no mobile business. Almost yeah, I... nothing. Almost nothing, I have to say. I mean, you you hit it. So I'm not. Gonna, I mean, I can just repeat it. it. I don't. I don't think culturally it's in their DNA to even consider mobile. You know, I don't know if it had to do with cannibalization or not, but it just seems something that they. You, you described it perfectly. So I'm not going to go there. It, it's just ironic that like one of the most defining mobile games is their, well, you know, is their partner's IP is Pokemon Go, which they get royalties from, right? So, and there was that whole. You know, mess up with people not understanding the financials of that either. They had to like kind of correct the market. You know, that what was that 2016? That's come out and be like, yeah, we only get like you know modest royalties. It's not in the stock. We're like, woo! And it was it was all it was all fun back then. It's it's so Nintendo back then. You know what happened back then? We you know with investors and the communication. It's so typical, right? So, but uh, yeah, so so I think that yeah, Nintendo is not is not really interested in that sector. At least at least uh, in in that. Uh, at this point in time, and it's a, it's a pity from an investor point of view because with uh, with the launch of Fire Emblem Heroes, um, you know uh, the mobile uh, mobile game based on their Fire Emblem strategy series, they they proved that they can actually have a global yeah. hit on mobile. So that that game, you know, didn't make didn't make Candy Crush numbers, but I think it did okay, you know, relatively relatively well in terms of in terms of uh, you know revenue. I think it, uh, the lifetime is probably like crossed a billion or something like that for Nintendo. Not that bad, you know, for like a third tier uh, IP IP uh, from uh, from Nintendo. But I think that um, unless unless the company's down at its needs again, uh, they won't uh, they won't um, you know they won't uh, back off from this idea of like. Owning the entire stack, you know, Nintendo loves being an integrated software and platform provider. They love owning that entire stack, right? And if they go to Apple or Android, um, they lose control of a lot of things that they are uh, used to being in control of, and that's uh, too much apparently for uh, a hundred thirty-year-old uh, proud Kyoto company. So Hoyo versus Safe, <laughs> they can keep doing their strategy of copying uh, Nintendo titles and bringing them to mobile and cross-platform. You mean MiHoYo? Uh, you, you said MiHoYo? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of like the word on the street, right? The the rumors is that um, kind of like the MiHoYo HoYoVerse, now now known as HoYoVerse strategy, is let's look at Nintendo's catalog and let's just make that, but mobile, free to play, cross platform. <laughs> I mean, Genshin is Zelda, 
right uh hunkai star rail is kind of fire emblem right like they're they're just going down the list they're gonna probably exactly. make a, a monster exactly. game at some point and they're gonna call it something like <laughs> yeah. and you know just just take your pick i mean it's working why stop and they're also spending 200 million dollars on on ua for every game so that helps too yeah why would they stop right i mean if it makes sense for them commercially if nintendo yeah. doesn't do it somebody else will yeah all right brian should we move on to sony yeah let's do sony uh, so Sony, obviously, also a publicly traded company, a market cap of about $120 billion. Uh, their gaming business is called Gaming Network Services. That did about $26 billion in revenue in fiscal 22 and about uh, 28 as guided in 23 for 7 to 8% growth. Uh, gaming, uh, as a part of Sony's total business, is about 31 to 34% of revenues and 20 to 21% of uh, operating income. So much like Nintendo, new console launches are a pretty big catalyst for Sony's gaming biz traditionally. Uh, typically, sales are tempered mainly from a consumer cost benefit analysis in the prior or in the early years of the cycle. Um, the old hardware is typically deemed good enough for the software that's out there. And there's also obviously also this uh, development lag for developers to really utilize the new hardware. Uh, in 2021, which was the first full year of sales for the PS5, sell-through was about in line. Uh, in 2022, COVID had a pretty harsh impact on the semi-supply chain, particularly in China. Adding to that, the Eastern European conflict had negative impacts on logistics and parts inventories. And as a result, PS5 sell-through fell behind PS4. Now, fast forward to this year, Sony's put a ton of effort into multi-sourcing and logistics, and PS5 is expected to overtake PS4 during this holiday season. And concurrently, Sony is, ex is expecting engagement trends for PS5 to lap PS4 early in 2024. And adding to that, uh, Sony is suggesting that LTV on new boxes is about 30% higher, and that's driven by huge growth in add-on purchases, which would be like microtransactions, and plus 50 to 60% growth each in accessories and subscriptions. So the high-level take here is that the ecosystem is healthy and growing, and interestingly, this is also coinciding with the three to four year lag where game developers have had access to the hardware, meaning potentially more blockbuster games on the horizon for the Sony ecosystem. And I go through a quick little strategic objectives that they have outlined. Uh, the first being uh, M&A, they're signaling more, but the most interesting one over the past few years has been Sony's response to Activision's $70 billion acquisition by Microsoft in purchasing the studio that essentially cemented Microsoft as a major player in the gaming hardware ecosystem. So the marathon release date is probably not until 2025, but it's arguably the most important Sony, Sony launch in a decade. They've always been weak in first party shooters with multiplayer, and there's some other things in there like Concord and Fair Games that people are, are getting a little, little excited about. Uh, subscriptions, they're selling three tiers of subscriptions now. Essential is literally essential. It's online play, uh, game trials, and cloud streaming. 30% uh, of their installed base is now on premium or extra with lots of room to grow. Uh, a huge expansion in content investment, which is probably the most interesting thing that's going on. Um, 40 to 60% of new to old in 2023, which is expanding to 50-50 by 2025. And this compares to only 20 to 80 in 2019. And then a huge expansion also in live services, 55, 45 live service versus single player experiences in 2023, expanding to 60, 40 in 2025. And this compares to 12 and 88 in fiscal 19. So a huge shift. Uh, clearly, they see the writing on the wall that live service is where the money is. And this is, again, opposite of the strategy we were just talking about with Nintendo. 
Uh, lastly, mobile. This is also one to keep an eye on, uh, both in smartphone ecosystems, which we've already torn apart, and Project Q coming in November. And I think that those are both kind of out there. Um, so I guess my first question to uh, Sir Khan, uh, how much do investors care about the gaming business versus the rest of Sony? Do you see more gaming specialists versus TMT hardware and financial investors? And how does that differ from the rest of the names? Yeah, for me, for myself, uh, for myself, uh, you know, when investors are contacting me about like consulting services for uh, um, uh, that uh, that related to Sony, uh, they want to talk about the gaming business. Uh, but they do mention that you know it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a it's it's a little bit difficult to uh, uh, you know to basically analyze the, the company because it has so many different businesses. Uh, I think that Matthew called them a financial company uh, in in uh, last in the last episode or the episode before that, um, and there's some truth to that, right? I mean, they have a, I think they have a life insurance business, a banking business, and you know things things like that, what the, uh, which many people outside Japan actually don't know about. Um, uh, but uh, it's true that they have a lot. They have music, movies, and you know all of these things, right? So, um, but I think that the gaming business. Uh, even the gaming business, right? So um, you know their their mobile their smartphone game business that they have with Aniplex, uh, uh, you know a label that is a, uh, that is a subsidiary or that belongs to the subsidiary of uh, of Sony, which is uh, Sony Music. Uh, revenue from from that from that uh, mobile gaming segment uh, doesn't flow into the PlayStation segment. It flows into the music segment, right? So you have to know that when you when you actually want to do a, a precise job of gauging uh, uh, Sony's uh, Sony's gaming business. So it's it's quite messy, but it's not it's not the only um, you know Japanese company that is uh, uh, that is a little bit messy from that perspective. You know, Bandai Namco has a huge toy business, a huge licensing business. Uh, you know, Capcom is doing uh, pachinko arcades. Uh, Sega has a, a re casino resort business, right? A billion-dollar <laughs> casino resort business. They're also doing pachinko, right? Konami has a sports gym, a physical sports gym uh, chain business. They're operating that chain in in, in Japan. Um, it's not a gigantic business for them, but uh, you know, uh, all of these, uh, not all of them, but a lot of these, uh, you know, um, uh, big Japanese video game business uh, businesses have uh, all of these uh, like uh, side hustles. Right, and th that makes th that makes uh, them uh, difficult uh, to analyze, especially for non-Japanese uh, analysts. I feel like uh, from 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 time to time. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think these like have it's ever gone anywhere, but there's always been calls, particularly from Western investors, for companies like Sony to break up. Like, hey, put the PlayStation, the music, the mm -hmm. TV business, the entertainment pieces, right? Spin those off and make that a pure play entertainment juggernaut, and it just never goes anywhere. Like, it doesn't necessarily make sense that they're under one roof, but it's just. I get, I, I just kind of get the sense that that's normal and and you see that across all these companies. So, you know, it, it, it hurts shareholder value to a degree because conglomerates get valued at a discount. Like, you know, the argument is that, Hey, you can unlock shareholder value by, by breaking it up. But I just don't think that's ever gone anywhere, you know, in any material discussions other than people being like, you know, spreadsheet warriors like me, like, Hey, value goes up if you break it up. Sircon, what are your thoughts on project Q since uh, I know you already have a switch? That's that's my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a PlayStation Five? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course, I have a PlayStation Five. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a PlayStation Five, and I love it. And uh, you know, I think that I'm a big fan of Sony's strategy overall. They've done an unbelievably good job of you know developing like this network of first parties, uh, first party games, and first party studios over the last decade, right? I mean, it's not a coincidence that you you call them blockbusters. That you know, Sony has been pumping pumping out. 
basically blockbuster after blockbuster for the last couple of years since the PS4, PS3 generation, I think late, uh, late PS3 generation, um, and uh, uh, they, that they've been basically... I hate to, uh, to to harp on 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 Xbox too much, but they have been you know basically uh, you know um, killing it also when compared, especially when compared to, to Microsoft on the on the first party software software front. That's one reason why they are so far ahead in terms of hardware sales, right? Because no matter what you think, no matter what you say, blockbusters drive hardware sales. Right, because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, this is not sustainable. At some point in time, you know, the, the whole ecosystem is going to implode. You know, we talked earlier about how people were thinking that uh, uh, smartphones and tablets are going to uh, kill the console gaming market altogether. That never happened, right? Because people want to have these blockbuster experiences, right? Um, and I think that Sony has been doing a, a very, very good job in nurturing uh, all of these, all of these, uh, uh, um, you know, console console game studios. And now the big challenge is. If they're actually going to go uh, go ahead and actually be going to be able to transform themselves into a, a mobile slash uh, life service company, because they said 50 percent, 50 50 is their uh, revenue split target for fiscal year 2025 um, for console games on one side and live service and mobile games on the other side, and that's a pretty ambitious uh, ambitious uh, target for a company like Sony at this point in time. JK's friend Mishka's got his work cut out for him at, at Sony. <laughs> Uh, in terms so, of what, what is your take on mobile for Sony? I, I think we kind of came to the conclusion, as we discussed earlier, that mobile plus console makers, there may not be too much synergy there, but w w what's your take? Do you, do you think, uh, are, are you optimistic or pessimistic about Sony's mobile business? And how do you think they, they navigate that business if, if, if they're going to do it right to get, to get greater growth? Yeah, they seem they seem to be very they seem to be very optimistic about it because as I mentioned, you know, they want to get uh, pump up the number within within the next two or three fiscals, right? So uh, yeah. they seem to be very very confident of their of their progress in that area. Otherwise, they, they just reiterate, reiterated that I think they had a strategy uh, strategy meeting uh, a strategy briefing for investors just a couple of uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and they reiterated that, right? So they had the same graphic on the, on the slide. And they are saying, well, you know, we we are like still keeping keeping that target for fiscal 2025. Um, so at the moment, at the moment, uh, Sony um, has been trying it, especially in Japan, to establish like a, a mobile game a mobile game uh, business for years and years now. Uh, not very successfully, you have to say. So they actually established a subsidiary in Tokyo called Forward Works that you, you know used uh, some of the old PlayStation IP. You know, very very low key. They just you, uh, tried it in. In Japan, I think the company still exists, but the, the games are ba basically all shut down or are not really are not really being operated anymore. Their big one one big hit game though is uh, uh, Fate Grand Order, right? And that uh, that uh, game came, came out I think in summer 2015, and it probably grow uh, as uh, has grossed. Uh, Five billion, six billion since 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 launch for uh, for uh, for uh, for Sony. So if they have one of these uh, one of these big blockbusters once again on the smartphone on the smartphone uh, front, um, it it could help it could help Sony sure. with uh, uh, reaching reaching that target. But it, it's got, I think it's, it's it's going to be tough, right? And uh, now their mobile business seems to be a little a lot more internationalized. You know, they 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 bought Savage Savage Studios, for example, in Berlin. And apparently, they're doing a mobile shooter that's based on one of uh, Sony's own IPs for uh, for smartphones. But uh, it's I think uh, that part of the business is going to be tough uh, for for Sony to build a, to build a, a mobile a mobile gaming business that is at that scale at the scale that Sony is shooting for.
and maybe I could ask you one more question. I don't know if, if the other guys have other questions about Sony, but you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that they've done a really great job in terms of first party. One of the things that I have heard is that a game like God of War from Santa Monica Studio was like it, it's it would be very difficult if it wasn't Sony to have made that game, for example. And so when you think about Sony versus another uh, owner or, or another, you know, sort of game developer publisher, is there anything like what is, do you know anything in terms of their approach towards first party that might be different from like a Microsoft strategy or, or how do you think about um, first party titles and, and, and how Sony has been more successful than, than other, than other, you know, companies in, in terms of like being so successful there and, and developing all these blockbusters to your point. Right, right. I think that, you know, if you, if you look at the last, uh, last string of Sony, Sony's first parties, big games, uh, mm -hmm. the number of flops is very, very low, actually, right? I mean, I'm not saying that every, every, every game is like a 90 on Metacritic and sells tens of millions of copies. It's not like that, but uh, uh, they have a pretty consistent number of really well-made games. What yes. I heard is, over the years, what I heard over the years is that Sony is absolutely hands-off and uh, and let's let's re let's the st different studios that they have in Europe uh, in, in and in America and Japan they only have like a, a smaller studio that they're operating now uh, uh, let them do their thing and apparently one time there was an occasion where uh, uh, there was a, like a group meeting of like the studio heads and then there was a presentation of of, of the ideas that uh, that they were that uh, that they were um, uh, presenting to, uh, to to the to, to the big guy at uh, to, to the Sony CEO. And then um, uh, they realized that apparently uh, at that meeting that uh, they uh, they were developing a, a game that was that was basically targeting for like the same kind of like world setting, the same kind of genre, and uh, and one one of the studios had to back off, right? Because the one studio had no idea that the other studio uh, in the on the other <laughs> continent is basically building almost the same game. Right, mm. so that that is that is one thing, one anecdote that I heard over the years. And but there are other anecdotes, uh, not as as uh, as uh, meaty as this one, but uh, that point to the to the fact that Sony actually lets uh, uh, lets uh, the studios do their own thing. Um, and I'm sure there's oversight. You know, I'm sure there's uh, there's some control by uh, you know by uh, by Sony HQ, uh, by by, uh, uh, by Herman. You know, who like oversees all of these uh, PlayStation studios. But apparently, uh, that's one. Uh, one uh, factor that is uh, driving these studios to these uh, results. I guess one, one of the major risks then, if they are increasing their investment cadence in live services, is that we have to recognize that all of the amazing blockbusters they make are very much single player experiences with beautiful worlds and amazing narratives, but they never really made that shift to multiplayer PvP type games. And you have to wonder if that, if that discipline carries through or if they'll be okay launching soft games or some other kind of outcome. Because um, it's, it's, it's definitely a new tack for them, right? That, that is correct. Yeah, that's correct. And if, if you look at, if you look at uh, the current discussion that we have in the video game world, uh, there's a whole blood trail of, uh, of uh, closed down uh, live service games nowadays. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very different ball game. Uh, and that's one reason why they bought Bungie, right? So on paper, they bought Bungie to, to help, uh, to help Sony out understanding live servicing, and apparently uh, Bungie has been consulting to uh, Naughty Dog about their uh, Last of Us uh, multiplayer game, and you know, uh, as a result, the, the, the launch of that game has been postponed. So 
uh, it's, it's not going to be a walk in the park for uh, Sony on that on that front for sure. The other the other side of that coin is like if they do spend that cadence of investment in live services games and it has a 20, 25 year lag, talk three or four years from now, Sony could dominate live services games if they have a similar track record. Yeah. Yeah, but, but then you know the, the question is like uh, you know who's, who's going to play these games, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. So, so there's like a finite uh, you know number of of of, of players. So Sony would it's say, well, you know that's that's why we are going multi-platform, right? So that's why we are doing like uh, these launches on 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 the PC as well to have like a bigger bigger uh, addressable market for us. But um, again, it's going to be tough for Sony. I mean, it's been done before, right? Rockstar has done it. They took single-player franchises and made them multiplayer. I mean, Red Dead Redemption Online never hit the highs of Grand Theft Auto Online, but it's still quite successful by many metrics, right? So, like, so it's been done before. But exactly to your point, we talked about it last on the last episode. Is that, or maybe even a couple episodes ago, is is is, you know, people have indexed a lot to COVID metrics, and post-COVID engagement has consolidated into a smaller subset of leading games. You know, you know, you could have played Call of Duty Warzone and Apex and another shooter in 2020 now you're playing one of them and 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 it's no longer just hey you're you're not competing for 20 hours anymore you're competing for 2000 hours mm-hmm. and that's a much different ask all right should we move on to square enix yeah let's jump into square enix i'm going to i'm going to take over from brian on, on on what he likes to call the fundies the fundamentals <laughs> uh, square enix market cap of about 6 billion us dollars according to my phone bloomberg cuz i forgot to put it in the notes uh, it's they're most well known for final fantasy games also a few ips like dragon quest that are much more popular domestically than in the global market um, at one point they were known also for crystal dynamics that was a studio they owned they recently divested that in a weird deal that we can possibly get into or that's a whole nother embracer discussion, which could happen another day. Um, you know, recently they've restructured some of their teams to focus more on blockbuster HD games and also blockchain efforts. Uh, yeah, they're they're like all in on blockchain, at least as much all in as you can be. Uh, in the fiscal year ending March, a lot of Japanese companies are on a March fiscal year. Uh, they generated about two point seven billion dollars of revenue. Two billion of that is from the gaming business. As as Sircon said, they have their side hustles. Uh, within the gaming division, about 40% comes from HD games and mobile games split, uh, and the remainder comes from their MMO games. Uh, you know, so that's Final Fantasy XIV and Dragon Quest X, I believe. Those are both actually very successful MMOs, uh, and they generated about $330 million of operating income. Looking ahead, they're projected to grow sales and OI 2.7% and 42% based on consensus in the current year. Uh, the games business is expected to grow 11%. Uh, with HD game sales rising 30% because they have several big releases planned, including Final Fantasy 16. Uh, that's a mouthful. There's a lot of moving pieces. It's a big, it's a big launch year for them, and it's always exciting when they enter a big launch year. A couple of questions. Uh, firstly, on the restructuring, um, divesting Crystal Dynamics in the Western Studios. Um, what do you think of this new strategy? That's that's kind of more focused uh, for the company going forwards. Uh, yeah, so so about the Crystal Dynamics deal, right? I mean, uh, so 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 I haven't, you know, um, I haven't really like gone in and you know crunched the numbers for days and for hours. But uh, uh, the price tag, I think it was three hundred million dollars, uh, uh, looks ridiculous to me. Absolutely ridiculous, right? And I think that you know uh, this is uh, the big factor. This is uh, one big factor. And you know, the reason why I'm saying that is that you know the uh, the game industry or like uh, you know game media or something like that has just glossed over. 
that that sale. Well, they said, you know, they just divested, right? They're, they're, yeah, but divested at what price, right? And, you know, why, why so quickly, right? And why to embrace her, right? You know, why haven't you waited for like, I don't know, for a few more months and then uh, sell the uh, sell the studio to another to another suitor for uh, for double the price or whatever whatever it could have been right and I think that this this factor is the the main factor why the CEO was booted out right so Square Enix has a new CEO uh, since uh, spring this year right and I think that the single big factor a uh, single reason why why that happened was that was was that sale um, uh, to uh, was that sale to Embracer. But now that, that is history, right? Now, you know, the company is looking at the Final Fantasy 16 launch, which is around the corner at the time of recording. Uh, Final Fantasy 14 is their Golden Goose, their forever game. Not many people are talking about it, but they have been, I mean, they have been making, sorry for the casual language, but making bank with that game forever now, right? I mean, it's just an unbelievable success story. At some point in time, a couple of, a couple of months ago, they stopped accepting new users into the game because they said, guys, we cannot handle the traffic anymore. Right? Imagine, imagine that, right? Imagine Epic doing that, right? I mean, they said, you know, we cannot uphold the service quality when we, when we let new users in. It's too much. Right. So um, and uh, I think that Final Fantasy 14, if, if we have this podcast recording in 10 years, it's still going to be around. Right. So and it's still going to make money for for Square Enix. It's just such a well-made life service game um, uh, and uh, very rare for a Japanese company right, to have a live service game on, on console or like on a bigger platform for video for a traditional video game company. But Square Enix is, uh, has made that has uh, made that uh, has made that happen. And uh, I would say that. Uh, Another big point uh, about Square Enix is their blockchain uh, blockchain game business. So it's the biggest company in Japan in the gaming sector that is looking at uh, at, uh, at the blockchain game um, space. And even though the CEO changed, uh, they still uh, seem to uh, focus on uh, Web three gaming um, uh, a lot. You know, we, uh, if you look at the latest earnings report, the English uh, the English version one third of the of the latest earnings report is was focused on uh, Web three. Right, so they focus still a lot on on crypto, metaverse, investments, partnerships, and you know uh, things of that nature in that in that particular space. So that I think that differentiates them from uh, n- not the fact that they do it, but the f- uh, the level of intensity intensity with which they are um, uh, focusing on that uh, on that uh, on that space differentiates them from many other Japanese video game companies. Are you excited for Final Fantasy sixteen? I am. I'm excited for it. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I, I don't think it, uh, they can top uh, they can top the last Zelda game, but uh, a, a new demo just dropped. I played the demo a little bit because I, again I was uh, busy playing uh, Tears of the Kingdom. But uh, apparently uh, that uh, that demo is is uh, super high quality, so people are very excited about it. It looks like. Yeah, and uh, just just one other point I'd make. Uh, I wanted to go. I want to go back to Crystal Dynamics. You know, there was there was a huge push by Square Enix with Crystal Dynamics into IP game. You know, licensed IP games. They did. Marvel's Avengers. I know. I you know this is all speculation. You wonder if if the failure of that game, you know, played into the role of just you know dumping the business. Like that was their last shot at kind of making that work for them. Because it, it never really was a fit with Square Enix, anyways. It was always like yeah. the weird bastard child, for lack of a better word. So yeah, I, I, just weird weird things going on <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree i agree with all all of that i'm just saying that the speed with which they they sold it right i mean why do you have to do a fire sale after all of these years you're a profitable company you sit on a ton of cash right i mean you you have big games coming out right i mean you're, you're safe you're secure why are you selling it for 300 million dollars 
in so surprisingly, so so quickly to another company, right? So uh, I think they could have waited. That's I think I guess that's my uh, that, that's my main point. They could have waited, right? And and uh, Crystal Dynamics is sitting um, and Ados slash Ados for, for, for back in the day. Uh, they, they, they are sitting uh, they're sitting on the Tomb Raider franchise, right? And the, the first thing that Embracer did, of course, was to sell the Tomb Raider IP to 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 Amazon. Why did why did why didn't why didn't Square Enix do that? Right, so that—that's I think that's what a lot of shareholders uh, or a lot of uh, people like uh, my, myself or us uh, have been asking themselves. And once again, I think that that's probably—I can just speculate. Obviously, I'm not working for Square Enix; I cannot talk for them. That's probably the uh, the main reason why uh, Kiryu-san is the new CEO now. Maybe they can buy it back cheaper in a few months. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Might be able to buy all of Embracer at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's a window of opportunity for, for for the new CEO to pay them back. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, moving on to another company that has a lot of cash and and you know could also theoretically afford Embracer at some point. Uh, Nexon. For those that don't know, Nexon is an interesting corporate structure. You know, if, if you're into like financial engineering, it's a Korean-based Japanese-listed game company with global studio operations and a U.S. and American CEO. So, you know, if you want to put the, the hangover Sam, uh, savant gambling meme in front of me, you know, that's basically what you have to do to think about how this company is structured a little bit. It has a market capitalization of about $18 billion, so it's much larger in the market than Square Enix. Uh, and in 2022, they generated $2.7 billion of revenue, so actually only comparable revenue, a lot more operating income, $800 million. For 2023, they're projected to generate $3 billion of sales and a billion of OI, so that's 10% and 27% growth. Their biggest titles, Maple Story and Dungeon and Fighter. In the West, we probably don't hear a lot about those, but uh, you know, uh, Sirkan, I saw in the notes you put the actual number of lifetime revenues. So I won't, I won't, I won't jump the gun, but Dungeon and Fighter is one of the most successful, not just video game franchises, but entertainment franchises ever created by revenue. Maple Story is one of the most successful in Korea. Uh, the bulk of the company's revenue does come from from Korea and China. Uh, and you know, just looking ahead. They're, they're they're taking a lot of shots on goal in the next eighteen months. They think I think they have eight large games, eight new titles planned, uh, including one from Embark. It's called Finals. And if you don't know Embark, that's the studio that was formed by Pat Soderlund, who was the CLO at EA for a while, uh, and then Nexon invested in that, and then they bought them out. So, a lot of moving pieces. One of the biggest PC online games in China is DNF. Tons of MMORPGs like Maple Story in Korea. Aggressive growth plan. Uh, what are your thoughts on Nexon? Yeah, so, so I think that Nexon is like a juggernaut, right? I mean, just a real powerhouse um, that uh, almost nobody knows, especially in the West. In, 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 of course, in Asia, it's much better. But in the West, nobody really talks about Nexon all that much, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, the eight, you, you mentioned $18 billion market cap. It's in the neighborhood of uh, Take-Two. Right, so in the U.S., it's not higher than Take Two, but it's you know it's in, in, in roughly in the same in the same ballpark, right? Uh, and uh, as you said, like it's an Amer- it's a Korean company that's listed in Japan for various reasons. One reason, of course, being that Japan is the bigger market for them; they had a bigger market opportunity here, so that's why they moved the HQ to uh, Tokyo and then got listed in, uh, in in Japan. And they have an American CEO, believe it or not. Right. Uh, um, and um, and uh, so it's 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 a very, very special, very, very spe- special company from that uh, from that uh, whole setup point of view. And uh, I would say that one big uh, bullet point about them is they sit on a huge pile of cash. They don't, do not seem what to do with it. So in 2021, they made the headline glo- headlines globally when they put 100 mi- uh, million in Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And that was just two percent of the cash pile back then. 
right? And it's just it's just a very cash rich, very well operated like a machine that has been running for the for the last uh, uh, for the last uh, couple couple of years, especially uh, you know uh, riding on um, uh, China game revenue from from a game called Dungeon Dungeon Fighter. I think that Matthew just uh, mentioned that. I think it's called Dungeon and Fighter in 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 Korea. And you know these guys have been basically milking. Uh, milking the uh, you know that uh, that uh, Chinese audience for years and years and years now uh, for two, two decades now you can say um, and I can I, I think that uh, what is interesting about Nexon is uh, that their revenue split is still 60 40 in favor of of uh, PC so they have been trying for a long 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 time now to transform themselves into a mobile to a mobile gaming business uh, mobile gaming business because as probably everybody here on the uh, um, uh, uh, listening to this uh, podcast knows is uh, that mobile is like about half of the gaming market, right? Overall, globally speaking, right? So, um, and uh, still 40% of rev revenue is still from China. Only a quarter is coming from Korea, so it's still very China heavy. Um, and at the moment, the big, the big, uh, the big, uh, uh, th there's like two big things I would say um, that stand out for for Nexon. One is uh, that they are have identified, as you just said, uh, you know, the console business as the next frontier. So because, of course, you know, investors are always looking for the next growth story. And uh, Nexon has identified after Bitcoin, they identified uh, the console business as, as their next as the next uh, growth opportunity. Right. So they're doing like a few console games uh, now, live service games. Um, and uh, I just hope that they're going to do better than uh, Crafton with Callisto Protocol. Right, so because Crafton did the same thing, they branched out into console. It didn't really work for them that well. Um, and uh, the other big uh, bullet point about uh, about uh, Nexon is um, uh, their Web3 gaming uh, aspirations. Uh, so just like a, a lot of other Korean companies, they are actively developing blockchain-based games. They're doing Maple Story, um, uh, two Maple Story-based uh, games and metaverses. And Maple Story is uh, like a long, long-standing RPG franchise, casual RPG franchise for Nexon. So they're turning them, uh, that uh, that franchise into like a Web3 property, I think into two, two different Web3 properties, actually. And uh, a final big point I would say about Nexon is uh, their upcoming launch of uh, Dungeon Fighter on mobile in the Chinese market. So a lot of investors uh, have been waiting uh, since uh, since 2020, at least, uh, for Nexon to be able to launch that game in China. But uh, as everybody knows, uh, launching games in China is very, very difficult, especially if you're a foreign studio. So that's still a big question mark for investors around the launch of that uh, particular game. Yeah, you talked about a unicorn in, in, in one of your previous responses. Mobile DNF is another one of those unicorns. It's just, yes. it's always been talked about. It always seems like it's around the corner and then something happens. You know, I think I think at one point they killed the game and they restarted it, right? And then they had the gaming freeze in China, the license freeze, and now it's kind of in limbo. I think everyone agrees that when this comes out, it's going to be a gangbusters release. It's just like, is it this year? Is it next year? Is it five years? No one really has a clue. Um, yeah. A lot of that is, as you mentioned, geopolitics. But you know, it is it is just kind of like, just how successful DNF has been on PC. It's just assumed that this is going to be an absolute you know money grab on mobile when it releases and in China and then and it has released in Korea on mobile and it's it's done fairly well like relative to the Korean market so I think it's encouraging uh for what they're trying to do in China it's just like you know it's just a matter of when they can hit those 700 million people with, with this game yeah I tested the game it's actually well made uh pretty pretty good uh, pretty good uh, you know mobile version of of the of the of the PC client uh but um 
yeah, of course, the bigger the big obstacle is uh, the Chinese uh, the Chinese license because the government doesn't care. Right? The government over over there doesn't care if if anybody is waiting for a license for that game, even though Tencent is their partner in China, right? I mean, that's another factor, but it apparently doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't help. Got it. Any any other thoughts on um, on Exxon, or should we move on to NCSoft? I think we're good. I mean, you also pointed it out. It's just like, and it's not unique to Nexon. It's not unique to Square Enix. It, it's it's just kind of when you compare balance sheets of companies in Japan to pretty much Western companies anywhere else in the world, they just hold a lot of cash. And I think it's just quasi-cultural conservative management. But you, you mentioned it, and it's just worth pointing out for all of these companies. They sit on a lot of cash, and you know it's always a question of what are they going to do with it, and they just never do anything with it except buy a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin. <laughs> All right. Well, NCSoft. So roughly $4.9 billion in terms of market cap, but that's down from a high of over $19 billion in February 2001. So down almost two, uh, 75% from that high. Uh, since, uh, since that February 21 high, NCSoft has been on a fairly steep decline. The stock went down to about $4.7 billion back in September of last year before popping back up to seven eight, and then coming back down to its currently current level of about $4.9 billion. Um, in terms of the products, the company generates uh, most of its sales on mobile, so about 78% of its revenue as of Q1 of 23, with uh, the primary games including Lineage W, Lineage 2M, Lineage M, and Blade & Soul 2. Then on the PC side, the biggest games by revenue include Lineage, Lineage 2, Guild Wars 2, Aeon, and Blade and & Soul. So NCSoft really is kind of like an ARPG MMO company with a big focus on mobile. And I think in terms of products or up, future upcoming products, one really big open question is Project TL, also known as Throne and Liberty. It's a big MMO project that was... I believe first announced in 2011 as Lineage Eternal, but has just been suffering many delays since then. Uh, and even further, there's been a lot of negative feedback in terms of the game's too simple in terms of the combat system. There's too much autoplay. And a lot of people are saying, this is just a mobile game on PC. And so uh, based upon that, as well as potentially a, a friendlier monetization approach, which could be good or bad, uh, you know, I think that's a current state of NCSoft. So I'll turn it over to the real expert, Sircon. Uh, it'd be great to get your take. Have I characterized um, NCSoft appropriately? And what would you add to how I've currently described NCSoft? Yeah, so, so I wouldn't call myself a quote unquote expert on the on the on the Korean, on the, uh, particularly on the uh, on the Korean game uh, game companies. But I, I've been looking for at uh, at, the, at these all of these Korean game companies uh, because of the like geographical like the distance to uh, to Japan, which is like a lot a lot like uh, shorter than uh, to the west. Or, or for example, not also because all of these companies uh, that we talk about from Korea are very active in the Japanese market, right? That NCSoft is 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 also very active in Japan. With their own offices, their own, uh, you know, teams, and you know, all of, all of that jazz. And I think that apart from like uh, hardcore Asian MMORPG fans in the West, there are some, but they are not a lot. Um, and of course, industry people like ourselves, not many people know about NCSoft in the in, in, in the West, right? So unlike Crafton, right, which operates uh, PUBG or um, you know Perlibis, you know Perlibis right. from Korea has like a Black Desert, which which has an okay audience in the West. 
or like Eve Online, right? I mean, they 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 own Eve Online. But I guess that you know the one reason why we talk about these Korean companies is uh, uh, that's one reason why we talk about these Korean companies because there's not a lot of you know information flowing outside uh, um, you know outside the Asian region on on these companies, right? And I think that uh, what is interesting about this company in particular is. Uh, that they were focusing entirely on the PC up until 2016. So they had all of these brands, you know, that that uh, that you mentioned, uh, especially Lineage, which is uh, which is the bre uh, bread and butter product. And then from 2007, uh, 2017, and Seasoft, unlike Nexon, has actually been successful in transforming itself into a mobile studio, right? So um, they launched uh, three Lineage games on mobile since then. At the first one, Lineage M, that they, that they launched on mobile. Uh, I think it was in 2017 or something like that. Yeah, but when they started, like, you know, transforming themselves into, like, again, more of a mobile game studio, that was even a big hit in Japan for years. Even though MMORPGs uh, and the PC in general are not really big in, in the Japanese market, right? So, um, and uh, back then, Netmarble published published that game in the Japanese market, uh, market actually, believe it or not, for, uh, for NCSoft. And today, uh, you know, a, a lot of the major bulk of NCSoft revenue is coming from mobile, right? And uh, uh, but I think that uh, one big challenge for them is uh, that uh, uh, the big um, geographical uh, concentration of their revenue in, in and of their, you know, um, uh, how, how can I say, of their popularity of the games is in Asia, right? Forty percent of right. the revenue is coming from Korea, or another big chunk is coming from from other regions, uh, like uh, like uh, in Asia, like China, for example. Right and uh, and you mentioned you mentioned the stock price the stock price I mean it's at I think it's I checked yesterday it was at three hundred thousand one uh, and it it was one million one in two thousand twenty one and I think that okay. one big reason was uh, uh, the pandemic driven uh, revenue boost you know that uh, that uh, these Korean companies have have enjoyed around that around that time. But still, it's it's a pretty rough drop from uh, from from the highs back then, uh, because uh, the revenue didn't drop as much as the market cap did. Right, so um, uh, it, uh, it it seems to be like a mini bubble that a lot of the Korean companies uh, were seeing around uh, 2021, late 2022. Crafton is another example. Right, and Crafton is like not not a, a apples to apples comparison because they launched uh, they IPO'd, right? But mm -hmm. they IPO'd uh, at I think 500,000. Uh, one and they are two hundred thousand one now. So uh, all of these uh, Korean game companies, they're still multi-billion-dollar corporations, right? I mean, if, if you know, uh, Matthew just mentioned uh, uh, Nexon being an eighteen-billion-dollar company, but it's not as high as it used to be about one and a half years ago for uh, for NCSoft either. And I had a question on, on them, and you know, you meant I just I found it ironic. First off. That when they first thought about mobile, their first thing they did was license their IP to Netmarble, and Netmarble made, you know, Lineage Revolution, Lineage Two Revolution, and then they were like, "Hey, we can actually do that." So that's just a funny little history anecdote. But you know, everything they've tried, mobile Lineage W was supposed to do this, the most recent mobile game. You know, it's supposed to be unlock the West for them. They haven't been able to do that. I mean, that was all. That was a big part of the strategy. Um, do you think that this is something that a company like NCSoft can do? Or do you think that the types of games they make, the genres they make, the type of art styles just aren't going to succeed in the West? I think it's going to be tough for them in the West. I think that uh, I think that it's because they don't only have to change the platform, which they already did, but they also have to change like the whole like identity of the company, right? I mean, the whole 
like a stu studio structure or like the whole like philosophy around the company, right? So, uh, so for, for them and even for Nexon, right? With the, at least with their PC and, and their mobile games, they're trying, right? Nexon is trying too with uh, addressing like a bigger market outside outside the Asian uh, outside the Asian uh, markets. But uh, it's 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 I think it's it's a big challenge for NCSoft in particular. I think. Uh, not with lineage and not with uh, you know properties like uh, Blade, uh, um, uh, like Blade and Soul, for example. I think it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's 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 always kind of been something that they all talk about doing, and they just kind of eat their head and do the same thing, and it doesn't work. But you know, maybe it's just pandering to investors that hey, we're growing, we have this opportunity. Maybe that's just maybe that's part of the game. Uh, but yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting company. You know, they they've also been doing this for a long time. You know, back to the PC days, right? And I think. You know, in the West, we don't realize how successful and how long of success these companies yeah. have had, like NCSoft, in doing this. But do you guys think when it comes to, like, ARPG, MMO, is it a company thing? Or do you think this is just, like, an inherent, you know, it, it's like mobile MOBAs in in the West just don't work well. But in China, they, they're extremely great. And do you think, like, ARPG, MMO, and it's just, like, a thing that Koreans like and just can't be translated well to Western markets? Or do, do you think this, like some Korean company can figure this out or Chinese company or Japanese company for that matter? I mean, if we think, if we think of Asian based companies that are successful in the West, it's generally the ones that have been around the business for 30, 40 plus years. Right. And it's, it's IP that's been around for equally as long or partially as long. And like they have a better understanding of what the U S customer wants and needs it's a very hard market to punch into for several reasons. It's not just about, I mean, I think our style certainly has something to do with it, like development expertise and everything else. But it's like, you've been doing business here for 30 or 40 years. You're going to have an edge on someone that's just doesn't. Uh, and that's kind of stood the test of time. Nintendo has, you know, 40, 50% of their revenues in the U.S. for a reason. Sony, mm. way more than that. And it's just like, they have a they have a sales motion. They have relationships with publishers. They have relationships with the uh, distributors, and they just make good games. It's very hard to punch into. All right. Well, let's move on to our last company, which is Netmarble. Uh, this is a company that I don't think Wall Street guys like very much. Um, <laughs> was uh, similar similar to uh, NCSoft, uh, highly valued, or many of the gaming companies, right? Highly valued. At 15 billion back in December of 2017. Since then, the company hit a COVID high of about 12.6 billion in market cap in September of 2020. Uh, basically, massive COVID upswing. Uh, it went from uh, 6.1 billion in May to 12.6 billion in uh, September. And so, similar to NCSoft, it kind of has been on this steep decline. And uh, Bottomed at about 2.5, 2.5 billion in market valuation as of October of last year before popping back up to about 4.7, 4.8 billion earlier this year in April before coming back down to about 3.5 billion today. So, quick product highlights, and I'll turn it over to Sircon. On a product basis, I think Netmarble is best known in the West as the owner of companies that we're more familiar with, companies like Jam City and Kabam. And the company is largely mobile across a number of both IP and original IP games. On the IP side, they are probably best known for BTS World, Nino Kuni Cross Worlds, Lineage Revolutions, as we had talked about uh, previously, 
Marvel Feature Fight, Seven Knights, and Fate Grand Order. And in some cases, like Fate Grand Order, Order, which is that Sony Aniplex game that we had talked about, they are just doing localization and geo-servicing for Korea. Um, finally, Netmarble is, seems like it increasingly has plans for a PC and console. On the PC side, they have four games live and console one game called Seven Nights. But I believe that they have announced or they've got more console game projects that are being planned. So with that, let me hand it over to Sircon. What do you think? Um, would you add anything in, in terms of characterization of Netmarble? And why? why do all the Wall Street guys hate this company? Uh, yeah, so so I think that uh, I think that the, uh, one interesting point about uh, Netmarble is that they're a lot more internationalized uh, than most of its other local competitors in Korea. So uh, in Japan, for example, uh, Netmarble was the first uh, you know Korean company that actually splashed on uh, 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 splashed like uh, made a huge splash in the market and uh, uh, did, did uh, gigantic UA campaigns. So they launched the previous, uh, uh, what we just talked about uh, with uh, Lineage, when they launched the first Lineage game on mobile in Japan. I think they were the first company, um, even even before before Japanese companies, local companies did what they do. Uh, they, they launched um, 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 a company, uh, a game, Lineage, in, back, uh, back then, uh, in the Japanese market uh, with a TV advertising campaign before the game was uh, was available for download. Right, so that was part of that like pre-registration, pre-registration campaign. Just as a side note, right? So they came into 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 the Japanese market with a bang, right? With a big blockbuster game and with a big blockbuster advertising campaign. With something again, something they did something that no other, even no other uh, local competitor did. Um, and um, so today, the interesting thing is uh, that around fifty percent of their revenue is coming from North North America. Right, so um, you know, of course, you know they bought uh, they bought uh, Jam City. They have Kabam and you know, all of these things, but uh, they, they seem to be a lot more focused on internationalization than uh, than NCSoft, for example. And, and uh, uh, I think that uh, unlike NCSoft or Nexon, uh, uh, what is interesting about uh, Netmarble is that you know they have a, a like a whole suite of smaller hits that they focus uh, that they focus their uh, not focused, but they, uh, that they've been able to spread their revenue across. Um, and so they're not really that dependent on one or two or three uh, big IPs, but uh, uh, rather like a whole like a uh, bunch of like uh, smaller IPs that they self-developed or mostly actually in the case of uh, Netmarble uh, bought externally. Um, and I think what is also interesting about Netmarble is uh, that they have um, a huge focus on uh, web free gaming, right? Um, and, uh, uh, what they did is uh, they are developing games for Sandbox, which is uh, like a metaverse. Um, they partnered with Binance. They partnered with Kakao for, for Web3 gaming. Um, and they have a subsidiary called Metaverse World. Very low-key, right? I mean, they're not using the Netmarble, uh, Netmarble um, uh, you know, um, brand name for that. And uh, that, uh, that subsidiary has, has its own token on NFT Marketplace. On an on game platform, they are, uh, so that that uh, subsidiary already uh, launched some some blockchain games. One of them is called uh, Meta Football. And Meta Football has not bad, ten million downloads on 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 Android alone. It's a Web three game, um, and it's like a futsal game, like an indoor indoor soccer game. Uh, and they have other pro Web three projects in the works. So they are very very focused on uh, on on the blockchain gaming business, and that seems to be one reason, together with the crypto winter that we're currently in why uh, investor sentiment has cooled off 
uh, on the uh, um, with regards uh, to this uh, to this company because they have been very very vocal in 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 terms of uh, support of, uh, of the Web three gaming space. I think also one of the reasons investors have soured on it is, you know, similar to like Embracer, a little bit like Zynga. This was an M and A roll up story. You alluded to it, right? They've yeah. they've been very acquisitive since they went yep. public in 2017, I believe. They basically top ticked the social casino market in 2021. They bought Spinex, which I had never heard of until I pulled up the numbers at the time, and I was like, oh, these guys are actually big in revenue. So they pretty much like they've kind of top ticked everything in recent acquisitions, which which isn't very good. Um, and so there's obviously you know they have great IP, and I don't think it's like Zingo where people question their ability to grow organically, but you know it, it's clear that. We had the COVID bubble and valuations, plus they were being very acquisitive in that period. Now they're digesting those those acquisitions that are not performing as well. You know, they the the core games have come down because the COVID boost has come down. Uh, you know, you you have questions over the Web three strategy, kind of all these things. And you know, diversification is good, but on the same token, it's like you're you're just a. It's kind of like a pile of lots of okay good games, and there's no big big. You know, it's, we talked about Nexon and how DNF prints money. Like they don't have a game, not at that scale, but they don't have a game at the scale that, you know, this is printing money. This is the cash grab. You know, this is this is what's driving the, re the revenue and the profitability. And then everything else is nice to have. They don't have that marquee tentpole franchise to sit in front of all of these good but not amazingly fantastic super large games. Okay. Any other thoughts? Otherwise, I think maybe we could also just, uh, since we have Sircon, maybe we could even get thoughts on other players in Japan or Korea. Uh, so, so maybe maybe we could uh, shift there, Sircon. So, if you have any like high level key thoughts or takeaways as as far as any of the kind of like the the rest the rest of the players, like who who should we know about, and are, are there any interesting trends or things we should be watching out for? Um, yeah, so, so I think in, in, in the Japanese in the Japanese gaming space, um, I think uh, Capcom is an interesting story, right? How they have been absolutely killing it over the last couple of years. I mean, it's not even funny anymore, right? So these guys, I mean, uh, you know, I have nothing to do with them. You know, I never I never talked with any of the executives there or something. I cannot I cannot consult with publicly traded companies anyway. But uh, but I just admire them uh, from uh, from an execution point of view. Right. I mean, the, the way that they have been, uh, you know, revitalizing old IP um, and, you know, uh, driving up, uh, driving up sales um, uh, like uh, to, to unknown to unknown highs for the for the company. And in tandem with that, the, the, the market cap has risen. Investors are super happy, at least the, the early investors. Right. Um, and it's not a coincidence, just a little bit like with Sony. Right. And I think that what is interesting about uh, uh, this particular company is that. Uh, that they um, uh, believe it or not discovered the PC as a as a as a gaming platform early on for a Japanese company, right? Because Japanese companies have this tendency to think uh, in a very insular way. They think that news or like trends are not real until uh, news are translated into Japanese or trends actually reach Japanese shores. They think that this is some foreign thing that doesn't affect them, right? And uh, and uh, but Capcom has. Uh, is uh, is I would say the first big Japanese company that uh, um, uh, that went big on Steam, right? And uh, that uh, that uh, did this multi-platform approach that everybody now is talking about in the global video game industry in the Japanese market. I think that uh, the cracking PC first was one big was one big reason why uh, why why Capcom is, is uh, has been so successful in in recent years. And what they also did very very uh, in a very very clever way is internationalizing the cam company from within. 
right? And there, a lot of the times, as you, I think Matthew just mentioned that, hinted at that earlier, it's just lip service from these Asian companies. We want to go west. You know, we want to globalize. Everybody says that. You know, mobile game companies, when they came about in Japan 10 years ago, I was there. I can speak about it. They all said that. But they had no, no like structure inside, no real will to, to actually internationalize. It's different with Capcom. So if you look at Capcom, uh, you know they have this, all of these franchises, right? So these hit franchises, and the latest Devil May Cry uh, uh, game, for example, Devil May Cry Five. Uh, one of the big, uh, one of the lead producers was an American, right? His name is Matt Walker. They hired like a real Amer real American to to uh, as a top producer for that game. And for Resident Evil 8, an, the bigger, even the bigger franchise, right, for, for, for Capcom, one of the producers was uh, an ex-Bloomberg, uh, no, no, that, that was, uh, no, uh, not ex-Bloomberg. Okay. So, no, no, it, it, uh, uh, there was an ex-Bloomberg, uh, that's a current Bloomberg editor that used to work for, for Capcom, but he's out. That, 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 so in that case, the international, uh, not out, but he doesn't work for Capcom anymore. So in that case, the internationalization didn't work, but uh, the, uh, one of the uh, Resident Evil 8 producers uh, was an American. He works for Bungie now. Uh, this is all public information, of course, right? And uh, he was a top producer on one of the top games for the entire company, right? And he actually appears inside the game, right? Uh, just as a minor spoiler, right? And show me another, show me another you know, Japanese company that does that. Right? I mean, they have maybe one of the uh, uh, the other designer or like a programmer, or like a software engineer in the background, but not at these top roles. But Capcom actually took that risk and really wanted to internationalize again itself from within, and that's also one reason why Monster Hunter World um, has has uh, is now a breakout hit in the in the West too. It was like a big franchise only in Japan. People said a little bit like with the NC Soft and the, the Net, uh, NC Soft discussion that we just had, right? People said that it will never be successful in in the West. It's too ja it's too Japanese. But then you know uh, it became uh, uh, Monster Hunter World in particular in 2018. I think it was launched became yep. Capcom's biggest selling game of all time, right? I think they sold eight, 18 million or 19 million units of that game, right? So I think that uh, I think that Capcom is a very very interesting case study for a big Japanese video game company. Uh, that can actually go from go from one level to an entirely um, entirely new level uh, because of um, because of the efforts uh, that, uh, of, uh, that were triggered uh, from within the company. And now we'll see if they can do it on mobile, right? Because now they're talking about Monster Hunter Mobile. I think that's like, yeah, you know, if they can make mobile. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, I don't, you know, and it's interesting, right? But because what the, the communications from the company, right? I mean, this is just my opinion. I think it's not going to work because, the, you know, all of these Niantic properties after, after Pokemon Go didn't work. But the company itself said, you know, look, we are, that's not what I'm saying. But the company sa said, like, you know, we're looking at this primarily from a branding exercise as a branding exercise we want to make the monster hunter world uh, ip more uh, more known outside outside japan right and if you start communicating like that you know that I, in my in my book at least that's a, that's a view uh, that's a hit, big hint that they are not really uh, believing in the commercial potential of that of that particular mobile game yeah i, I mean I, I saw i saw it announced and i'm like this is witcher monster hunter and that went nowhere either it's like the same game so it's like you know, I, I'm not super optimistic, but I, you know, if they can make their IP work on mobile, then it's good for them and it's more upside, but they've already got a really strong business on PC already, which I think was already really impressive. You know, you mentioned Monster Hunter World. I remember seeing that at E3 one year and I was like, what's this like poor man's, you know, Warcrafty type game and then sold 10 million units out of the gate. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah. this is, this is something, this is not, 
This is not like just, you know, a little poor man's game. This, this, this is real. And it was quite impressive how they, how they, how they've been able to make that transition. I remember 2018. I remember that trade specifically. I think, I think Capcom tripled that year uh, and they ended up doing like 20, 30 million units, just an absolute breakout hit. And the whole day, uh, the pushback against not being able to break into the West was just completely torn apart. Uh, Sircom, it got another one for you. Uh, thoughts on Sega Rovio, so a Japanese company purchasing a Helsinki-based uh, mobile gaming development studio. What are your What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think that, that Joseph is a more of an insider than I am as an ex Sega ex Sega employee. I'm not an insider at all, so I, again, I cannot work or like con- even consult to a, a publicly traded company. But uh, I, I was puzzled. You know, I was puzzled by the uh, by the by the acquisition, and I, I tweeted about it. You know, usually I try to be a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit silent on uh, publicly on on these deals. But in this case, I couldn't, right? So I was like, it, it really came out of nowhere, right? Uh, um, and um, so, so they snubbed Playtika, right? I'm not a big fan of Playtika, so I think that was the right move. This is just my personal opinion. Better to sell yourself to a Japanese conglomerate than to a company like uh, Playtika. I mean, uh, no offense to, to Playtika. I think that, you know, they built a, a huge business, a scale business. And, you know, but I think it's, a, it's a probably a better choice for Rovio. I'm not really sure how they're going to integrate. You know, I know that Sega has already, you know, has has bought like foreign companies in the West and has, to some extent, like, successfully integrated them into their own into their own um, ecosystem. Uh, you know, I believe in the in the in the in the in the gaming in the gaming leadership of Sega. You know, Utsumi-san, the new uh, uh, not the CEO of Sega proper, but the uh, uh, the leader of the gaming unit. Uh, he is an ex PlayStation um, OG, uh, and he used to work at other game companies. Uh, uh, he speaks English. You know, he's a very internationally minded. It's not a so from that perspective. I'm not, I was not thinking about that from that perspective. I was not that that uh, overwhelmed by the decision. But uh, still, it seems odd. It still it still seems odd. I'm not really sure where the synergies are there. Um, people are talking about bringing Sega to 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 mobile. Uh, sorry, sorry, Sonic to mobile and other other properties uh, from Sega to mobile and Rovio. I mean. I'm not really sure. I mean, if, if that's how that is going to how that is going to work, how successful uh, that is going to uh, 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 to, to be. But you know, p- people in the Finnish uh, Finnish uh, uh, gaming industry, you know, they tweeted to me, they emailed me, and said, "Oh my, hey, you know, it's a profitable company. What are you talking about? Right? It's not as bad as people think, right?" Um, but still, still, still a little bit of a, of a puzzle for me. I'm not sure what you guys think, but. I, we, I think we, we, we talked about a little bit. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit neutral personally, but I think uh, it just kind of it fit the mold of the acquisitions that were happening at the time, in that they were all strategic and not necessarily ones you want to pick apart on fundamentals and price. Uh, it was good to see mobile M&A coming back to a degree, um, and I think if you look at Sega's vision for what it could be, I think all that makes a ton of sense. It's just uh, you know it's a ton of execution risk for. A billion different reasons, cultural, uh, spatial, time differences, um, discipline of certain studios, uh, the, the success history of Rovio launching new hits and things like that, Sega not really being on mobile. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could pick apart in that thing, but I guess we kind of just got to leave it up to the test of time. It's a great deal for Rovio. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. you know, yeah. you know they, they kind of had nowhere to go yep. and they were taking bids right and left, both solicited and unsolicited. And getting a deal, even I actually didn't go back and double check, even though I said I would. I believe it was a discount to whatever the highest offer from Playtika was, but they were able to get a deal where they don't all get fired. So, right. you know, that's uh, it's a good win for Rovio. I, I, I agree on Sega. It's a little mes- mixed. 
I, I talked about Roblox and what they've done there uh, with with Sonic. I think Angry Birds to to to, to Roblox is an easy is an easy layup for them to to make some incremental revenue from this deal. So I think there are some op- optionalities that they can pull. But we've we've seen, you know, we've seen lots of Asian companies. We talked about it for the last hour and a half. You know, fail to internationalize, westernize in particular. And you know, that's the big strategic thesis here is take Sega's mobile games that are relatively successful domestically and internationalize them and we'll see if it works, but you know, go Roblox. Like Angry Birds, Pachinko machines. Mm. Yeah. To, to your last point, Matthew, and, and I, I think to, to the point that you raised Sircon about Capcom getting like a U.S. lead, that, that makes me think a little bit about the strategic question about how do we have, whether it's, Korean company like NCSoft, that's you know kind of ARPG MMO focused, but not really. It's it's not really um, growing or adapting to the Western market. And if we were to think about other examples, like for example, Crafton, with where who brought in Brendan Green, who had worked on, you know, each one's one King of the Kill, and and he kind of knew the battle royale space. They brought him on, and while I heard that that development process was very. Uh, problematic uh, but they eventually got a, a hit yeah. game using that yeah. model and i know that um you know, you know there there are companies like some chinese companies that have brought on u.s leads um you know i think uh, merch mansion is another example of, of that where maybe this model of bringing somebody western who has more of the western sensibilities to work with as a lead you know like a korean or a japanese game development studio Maybe that would be more interesting for some of these companies to try, just just to get greater adoption in in the West. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Sirkan. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for reminding me because you know you talked about like uh, you know trends in, in in Asia, and I think one big trend in in, in Japan is uh, you know the uh, you know quote unquote invasion of the big Chinese uh, players in in the Japanese gaming space, right? And they do what what you said exactly, right? So they are they are hiring away. Uh, you know, top talent from from Japanese uh, game companies oh, where yeah. people thought, you know, they, they never leave, right? So Nagoshi-san right. from Sega is probably the biggest one. He's working for NetEase now. Yes. Yakuza, right? and yeah. NetEase, yeah, and, uh, of Yakuza fame, right? So that guy is now uh, working on, a, obviously, not a Yakuza game anymore, but uh, or, on, an, on a new IP um, bankrolled by, by NetEase, right? right. So the, uh, and he brought his entire team. Right, so they have a group uh, official net yeah. is like a corporate corporate uh, group photo of of of, of that team uh, up on the website, right? And uh, and the, the uh, and uh, that's only one example. There are other examples, right? I mean, net is just opened its second video game studio, not mobile game, but video game studio in in in, in Japan, and uh, and that seems to be a trend, right? So uh, to to hire like local uh, local experts to win, uh, not in the case of. Uh, Chinese companies uh, hiring uh, Japanese uh, Japanese talent, not only winning in Japan but also globally, right? Because right. Nagoshi-san's uh, Yakuza series, it's not a mega, mega, mega blockbuster in, in, in the West, but it's it's fairly do- it's doing fairly okay, right? In in the US right. and in Europe, and uh, I think it has also helped uh, Sega as a brand overall uh, in in in, the, in, the, in these regions. Uh, but that's that's a big one, right? How the proud gi- uh, Japanese mobile game, but also video game makers are being. Uh, are now being, uh, you know, um, uh, not endangered, but, you know, they, uh, now they, you have these Chinese uh, 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 companies like NetEase and like Tencent. Bilibili is also in Japan uh, with, with its own team. They're doing mobile games and, you know, things of that nature. Um, and uh, how these Chinese uh, companies have identified Japan as uh, uh, one of the big frontiers apart from the West uh, in, terms right. of, in terms of growth. 
and again, one big, uh, one big way how to how they do that is hire local talent. Very All right, um, Sir Khan, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's basically it, unless anyone's got any last minute remarks. Uh, if for anyone interested in in you, Sir Khan, I, I know you're famous on Twitter, but how, how, what are what's the best way to discover more about you or to get in touch with you? I think for, apart from Twitter, where I'm uh, sometimes uh, uh, too snarky and then I regret it, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to be I'm trying to behave on Twitter. But uh, apart from Twitter, uh, sakantoto.com is maybe like a good address if you want to uh, if you want to read right. a little bit about like the mobile game industry in particular, particular in Japan. I sometimes cover the video game industry as well on on that on that side. But uh, but uh, I think they have these two avenues probably. Okay, great. Well, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And for our audience, we will catch you next time. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Arkan. That was fun. Nice to meet you. Thank you. you.